We're going to be on page 51. Did everybody get the new handout? There's a few more back here if somebody needs one. Let me, let me, I can grab them. I'll grab them for you. I'm just going to get extra. Oh, man, I'm sorry. Two of them. Oh, there you go. Thank you. You're welcome. I have mine on my iPad. Need tonight's? We're trying to figure out. That's tonight's. There's two of them. Okay. All right. There you go. You want to grab one of those? Yeah, they're both. Nope, we're starting right on the new page there. You're welcome. All right, so page page 51 in the notes. And Matthew 13. We... Uh, we had to move quickly at some points, but we, we basically stayed on schedule. So tonight we're going to look at uh, almost all of chapter 13. And then, Lord willing, we'll come back middle of January and uh, start up a new semester and look at the second half of Matthew's Gospel. Let's open in a word of prayer tonight. Father, I'm grateful that you have spoken to us. Uh, Father, we've had the, the privilege over a few weeks now uh, to look closely at what your prophet Matthew uh, was led by the Spirit to record for us. Uh, we're thankful that it still is living and active today. It's still able to be used by your Spirit uh, to make us more like your Son. Uh, we just want to honor your Son tonight with the way we think and, and speak. I pray that you guide our discussion and that you would use this time uh, to make us more like Jesus. And uh, we ask for it in his name. Amen. All right, so if you think about everything that we've talked to up to this point, I'll kind of paraphrase that opening paragraph there at the top of page 51. You know, up to this point, we've seen quite a few places where Matthew has pointed to Old Testament prophecies and he's emphasized over and over again that Jesus is the one. He is the one who is going to fulfill all of these things. He either is doing it already, or he will do it someday. There's still a lot in the someday category. But either way, he is, he is the man. As one of my professors like to say, it's almost like the gospel writers are just continually putting a big arrow over Jesus' head and pointing to him. But if he's the one who's going to fulfill all these promises, especially in the Old Testament context, uh, promises made to the people of Israel to bring them out of exile, to rescue them from people like Herod, people like the Romans, well, what does it mean then that he's been rejected by his own people? Or, or to put it another way, what's, what's going to happen now? So I say there in the very middle of that paragraph that I think Matthew chapter 13, which is the third and central discourse in Matthew's gospel, 
is the answer to this apparent dilemma. It's not really a dilemma. This is the way God had always planned it. Everything God plans always comes true exactly how he planned it. But to us, it looks like a puzzle. It looks like a dilemma that Jesus has been rejected by his own countrymen. So I say the third and middle, so just to remind ourselves of the structure of Matthew's gospel up there. Remember, it's five discourses. I think the first and last are parable are parallel. The second and fourth are parallel with each other. And then the middle one is the central one. So it seems to be a technique uh, popular at that time period when they were writing something to have this parallel structure with the emphasis on the middle. We tend to put the emphasis on what we start with or what, what we end with. They often would put the emphasis on the middle of a section. So at the very heart of Matthew's Gospel, the middle of the five discourses, are these kingdom parables that we're going to look at tonight. And I think they answer the question, well, what happens now? Now that Jesus has been rejected by his own people, what's going to happen in the meantime until we finally see these promises um, come true? So, spoiler alert, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I think the parables are saying in a nutshell, and then we'll try to prove it by actually walking through the passage. So I say at the end of that paragraph, it was never God's intention to save Israel at the time of Jesus' first coming. I think we have to say that because if it was God's intention to do it, it would have happened. God's intentions are never stopped. So it was never his intention to save them. This postponement, from our perspective, of Israel's salvation allows for a long period of time in which the gospel will be preached to those who will accept it. It reminds me of the very last verse of Hebrews chapter 11. Remember after the writer of Hebrews is cataloged, all those heroes of the faith, he says these were all commended for their faith, but they didn't receive what they were hoping for. This is Ryan Meyer's paraphrase. They didn't receive what they were hoping for because, it says, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So men like Abraham, men like Moses, women like Rahab, they all died believing that God someday would do something, but they died without receiving it so that you and I could also receive it. So this delay, so to speak, in God's fulfillment of his promises is so that more and more people could share someday in the new world that's coming. And I think that's also what Matthew 13 says. Is talking about. So both the rejection and the acceptance can result from the same message. The difference is not in the message or the messenger, but it's in the heart of the person who hears the message. And it's God who changes hearts. So let's look kind of at the same bullet points that we've looked at with the other discourses. Let's, let's first talk about the setting. So if you look at verse 1, you notice that Matthew emphasizes that this happened the same day as the previous section. So in the previous section, remember he had um, told the, the Pharisees that they had committed an unpardonable sin by attributing his miraculous power and the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. And then right after he said that, there was that little short story where he identified his true family. That's where we left off last time. And then if you look at verse 1, it says that same day Jesus went out of the house. 
That's very interesting, right? Because we've noticed many times where Matthew's not really interested in chronological order. He just arranges things topically in his story. But here he wants you to know for sure, no, this happened the very same day, right after the religious leaders of Israel had made this, this ultimate final rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. Then Jesus gives this, this discourse here in the form of these parables. So in the middle of that paragraph, I say the rejection of Jesus demonstrated that the people's hearts were hard like the hearts of those to whom Jesus ministered. So this is skipping ahead just a little bit in the story, but when you get down to verse 10, right after he's given the parable of the three or the different types of soils, uh, the disciples ask him, why do you speak to the people like this in parables? And then he gives his answer that we'll talk about here in a second. But then beginning in verse 13, he quotes a pretty extensive uh, section of Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, Jesus says there, quoting from Isaiah, Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people, see, see that distancing language there? God doesn't say my people, it's this people. It's kind of like this generation. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. So Jesus is at least saying that the people of his day are like the people of Isaiah's day, that like the people of Isaiah's day, they have hard hearts. They're not born again. That's why they reject the message. But I think actually he's saying more than that. He's not just saying you're like those people. I think he's saying you, you are those people. You're that same family. It began at Mount Sinai when Israel became a nation, and it continued all the way through Isaiah's day, and it's still continuing into Jesus' day. They're all one people, and they all have the same problem. They need a change of heart. Uh, their rejection of the gospel can look different ways. You know, the, the, there was multiple ways in the story of the soils that the same good message is rejected. But in the end, it will be rejected unless God does something to change their heart. All right, so that's the setting. I think that's important that Jesus gives these parables in the context of what the Pharisees have just said about him and attributing his miracle-working miracle power to Satan. Well, what about the reason for the parables? So let's, let's back up a little, a couple verses, that section we skipped. So if you look at verse 10, the disciples, they came to him, and they asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. So see there, there's, there's two groups of people. There's the, the you, the disciples, and it's been given to them to know the secrets. So they're being given revelation. And then there's other people that God's decided he's not going to reveal himself to. In fact, he goes a step further and he says even previous revelation that they had, things that they did have, 
is going to be taken from them. So I think, you know, putting that together, I think there's a dual purpose. So there's two reasons that Jesus teaches this way in this discourse using the parables. The first reason is because they, these parables, they give new instruction to those with regenerated hearts. So that would be you and I tonight. If we're born again, if we've been converted, if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior, we hear the message of these parables. We can grasp their significance, even though sometimes the details are a little fuzzy and we may debate. Overall, we get what Jesus is saying. And we not only get the significance of it, but we embrace it. We welcome it. It's a good message to us. It's appealing to us. But to those who don't have that changed heart, to those who are unregenerate, they don't understand the significance. And even the details that they can make sense of, they reject. They see it as foolish. And so this is God using the parables by deliberate choice to withhold revelation because greater revelation would mean greater accountability. The passage doesn't come right out and give that as a reason, but I think it's a, it's a good inference from other things that have already taken place in Matthew's gospel. When we saw back in chapter 11 that it would be more difficult for the cities of Galilee at the day of judgment than it would be for some of the pagan cities of the Old Testament, right? Because with greater revelation comes greater accountability. So it actually seems to us that one of the reasons that God's withholding revelation, one of the reasons why Jesus isn't just openly, clearly talking to people, is because if he was more clear and gave them more revelation, and then they were to reject it, which they would, unless God changed their heart, they would actually then be incurring greater guilt, greater responsibility. So I think it's actually an evidence of God's kindness in Jesus that he withholds this. Point two there at the bottom of the page, Matthew has Jesus saying that he gives the parables to the crowd because they're not able to see, hear, and understand. So that's in verse three. So I, Jesus says, I'm speaking to them in parables because. We don't see that in NIV, but other translations have a, a because there that I think is important. If you go over to Mark's account and Mark's parallel account, Jesus says that he gives the parable so that the crowds would not see, hear, and understand. Some people have made a big difference between that. So Matthew says he does it because they can't see. Mark says he does it so that they won't see. So like it's causing it. I think actually the two men are saying the same thing with different words. They're both saying, that um, flipping the page there, that it's been God's decision not to reveal the truth to the non-elect within Israel. As in other New Testament passages which speak of God's sovereignty and salvation, this in no way minimizes the responsibility of unbelievers. All right, that next paragraph pretty much just summarizes what I just talked about there as far as uh, withholding or giving revelation. One more thing I want to talk about, though, when we think about the purpose. So look down at point four. When you get to verse 36, so let me read that for us. If you go to chapter 13, verse 36, there's, we're going to look at the entire structure here in a second, but there's a, there's a break here where Jesus leaves the crowd. It says in verse 36, he goes into the house and he starts pr 
privately explaining the parables to the disciples. But right before that key break, if you back up one verse to verse 35, Jesus says, So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things since the creation of the world. It's an interesting little quote there. It's from Psalm 78. In Psalm 78, these, these hidden things that are told as, as wisdom sayings, that's what the, the wording there is in Psalm 78, they're descriptions of what God has done for Israel in the past, culminating in the giving of David as king, despite Israel's ongoing rebellion. So if you go back and you look at the context of Psalm 78, it's one of those psalms that's given later in Israel's history. It's not written by David. It's given later. We know that because it refers back to David. And it's given to people who are unbelieving. It's basically given in the tone of like a father speaking to his children. And he's reminding them of the things that God has done in the past and how God has been so good to the people. Specifically, how God was good to them and giving them David as their king. Well, Jesus is applying that same idea through that psalm to his own ministry. He's now speaking to another group of rebellious Israelite people who need to be reminded of God's goodness. And now God once again has been good to them and giving them the greatest of the Davidic kings, the great son of David, Jesus himself. So I explained that a little further there in point four, but I think that's what's going on here in the psalm. Putting that all together... I think you've got this idea that we've talked about before, that ultimately in Matthew's gospel, there's two families. There's a family that belongs to Satan. It's a family that by default, we're all born into this world. We're all sinners, all children of Adam. But there's some of us who have been rescued out of that family. We've been born again, or to use Paul's language, we've been transferred out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. Now Jesus can speak of us as being his family. And in this world, we live together until the final judgment where we'll be separated out. Most people in Israel would have thought of themselves as over here, right? They would have thought of themselves as being part of God's family. But Jesus keeps over and over again by pointing to Old Testament passages like Psalm 78 to tell them, no, you're mistaken. You're, you're tragically mistaken. You actually are following your your father is the devil, you actually need to repent of your sins and receive the forgiveness that comes through me. That would have been Jesus' message. All right? Any questions there so far? We're at the top of page 53, and before I jump into what he actually says in, this, in the parables, any thoughts about the setting or the purpose? All right, so what does he actually talk about, all right? So remember, when you have a, a sermon, you can have a, a topic, what the speaker's talking about. It's usually the repeated phrase that keeps coming up. And then you can have the big idea or the point or the theme, what he says or she says about that topic, right? Well, here, in this, like the Sermon on the Mount, the topic is the kingdom of heaven. I think that's pretty obvious. You have this repeated refrain that such and such is, or the kingdom of heaven is like such and such. It's like a mustard seed. It's like a man who finds a treasure. It's like a man who goes out and sows seed. It shows up 12 different times in the discourse. So that part is easy. Well, what does he say about the kingdom of heaven? 
Well, in Matthew 13, 11, Jesus calls his teaching that he's giving here the secrets of the kingdom. That word secrets, or in some of our Bible translations, it's mysteries. We, some of us remember that from older translations, maybe, that we, we are, were exposed to. It's a word that comes from the Old Testament. It's used in passages like Daniel 2, Daniel 4. It's used again in the New Testament when you get to Romans. You remember Daniel 2 is the story where you know, Daniel is in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of a statue that's made out of different metals. And then a stone comes that's not cut with human hands that knocks down that idol, that statue that represents the governments of this world. And it grows to become a mountain. And it represents the kingdom that comes from heaven. And we said way back at the beginning of this course that that, I think, is where Matthew gets his phrase, kingdom of heaven. So kingdom of heaven is just a way of saying the kingdom that comes from heaven. That little word of is the source of the kingdom. In that very same passage, just a few verses after Daniel wraps up his interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, he's, he's just wowed by the fact that Daniel can tell him what he dreamed and what it meant. And so he says, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. So this is the idea that God has this, this plan for his universe that's hidden to us. You could think of it as like a book where everything is scripted, but only he sees the book, right? Only he knows what's planned. But every once in a while, he peels back the veil and gives us a peek. He gives us a little peek of what's coming in the future, things that he's already planned for his universe, what he's already planned for his kingdom. And these are the, the mysteries that are revealed. So I have this little quote there from Dr. Compton that I thought was helpful. He breaks it into four points. So a mystery in the Bible is, number one, it's for believers. So this is something that God does just for us. He reveals something to us. Number two, it's often give, given in veiled language, at least in the Gospels. So sometimes it's given with symbols or metaphors. It's not always very direct. Frequently, it relates to the, the eschaton, which is just a fancy word for saying the end of time, the last days. So usually when God gives a mystery, it's not about what's going to happen tomorrow. It's what's going to happen at the very end of the age when Jesus returns. And finally, they're generally interpreted for those to whom they're given. So God doesn't leave us in suspense, but in his kindness, he actually tells us what this mystery means, especially if it's given to us in symbolic language like the statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. So what is this specific mystery? All right, This is the point for the drum roll, right? What have, we've been working toward this. What is the secret that now is being given in these uh, parables? Well, I think the, the specific truth, and I'll put it up here on the board as well, that's being taught is that since the kingdom has been rejected, there would be an interval of time between Jesus' first and second coming where the gospel would be preached and meet with mixed responses. So I think if we put all of the different parables together and think about what each one of them is teaching and then try to put them together into one sentence that captures them all, this is my attempt at it, okay? So there's going to be an interval of time 
between Jesus' first coming and second coming. That's the interval of time that you and I are, are living in right now. It's been going on for 2,000 years almost. During that time, the gospel will go out and be preached, and it'll meet with mixed results. This is especially in the parable of the soils, right? Some people will just initially reject it. Some people will initially look like they accept it. But then over a period of time, whether it's days, months, or even years, you'll finally realize that they never really were born again. And something else will capture their heart and their attention, and they'll wander away from the truth. But there'll be some of us, by the grace of God, who are like the good soil, right? When the seed comes to us, it planted and it grows and it lasts. And by God's grace, we bear fruit and we hang on to Jesus. There's nothing else in our life that captures our love or our allegiance more than our Savior. And so we persevere in our faith. That first parable about the soils, I think it's the most important one. It sets the agenda for all the other ones. It's the longest. It's the only one that gets its own big interpretation in the middle. And I think it's the one that best explains what's happening. All right, so let's look in at the structure. So I think this is what's going on in the discourse. You've got, you've got three parables in, in two sets. So again, Matthew really seems to like his threes. So you've got an initial three, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast. And then in the middle, they get broken up by that passage we looked at where Jesus goes into the house and he gives a private interpretation of the first one. So that's kind of the, the hinge in the middle. So again, it's the central thing that kind of is focused on. Then you have another set of three. I think it's pretty obvious. You got the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl, the parable of the dragnet. So everybody sees that? Two sets of three on either side of the middle where Jesus is in the house. There's an introduction at the beginning and there's a conclusion at the end. The conclusion is very interesting with what Jesus says. But I think you can go one step further. I think, like we saw with the five discourses, there's parallelism. So you have matching parables that say the same thing, but with different images, which I think is interesting. So the parable of the weeds and the parable of the dragnet, the two that are in yellow, they're saying the same thing, but with different words. They're both talking about the final judgment, the separation of unbelievers from believers. And the, the ones in green that are next to each other, they say the same thing together. So I think the parable of the mustard seed is saying the same thing as the parable of the yeast. And then the parable of the hidden treasure is saying the same thing as the parable of the pearl. So I think that's how the, the discourse is structured. Jesus either taught it that way or, because Matthew sometimes will rearrange things chronologically, he's, he's chronologically moved around Jesus' saying so that it has this coherent structure to it. But again, I think it's all focused around this one main point, talking about the interval that you and I are currently living in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over that point four there at the bottom of the page. I, I answer a question there that comes up sometimes... Older dispensationalists have referred to what we're currently living in as the mystery form of the kingdom. So they say that the mystery that what's being revealed 
is that the Kingdom program has taken a new form. I don't think that's the best way to describe it. I think it's better to talk about the Kingdom being delayed. It's talking about a period of time and not a form. And I think I've already kind of beat that dog to death and it might not be an interesting topic. But if it's a question you have, you can read point four. All right. But let's get to the good stuff. What, is, what does Jesus actually say in these parables? So point D on page 54, I, I show you the structure. So you, you have in your notes what's up there on the screen. And I talk a little bit about that. And then let's try to move through these parables now one, for, one by one. All right, so at the bottom of page 54, some have argued that the parables were only for first century Jewish people or that the parables changed the meaning of the kingdom to something spiritual or to a mystery form. So, you know, think about that for a second. The argument would be that, you know, Jesus' point only has to do with people then currently living when he's speaking. I just don't find that very persuasive because then why does Matthew record it for us? Remember, Matthew's writing at least 20-some years after Jesus has already ascended back to heaven. By that time, he's already seen the growth of the Gentile church. He knows what's happening. Why would he decide to sit down, led by the Spirit, and record all of this for us and make it so central in his gospel if it doesn't have any application for us? So I really do think it has significant application for us. I actually think that Matthew 13 is directly talking about the time period that you and I live in. And it's actually talking about our mission of going out and preaching the gospel and making disciples as, as churches. So I think it's extremely relevant. All right. So the first parable, the parable of the soils. I think the big point here is that during this time period, the gospel would be preached and it would meet with mixed results. But those who produced fruit, that's one of Matthew's favorite words, it shows up 21 times in his gospel. So I think when Paul comes along and he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, I don't think Paul just made that up on his own. I think it goes back to Jesus' teaching. Jesus liked to talk about fruit, and so you see Jesus' followers using that same metaphor. And remember, most people then were in a farming culture, right? So it would have been a common way to think about results. So if you produced fruit, it would demonstrate that they were qualified because of the new birth to enter Jesus' kingdom. I know sometimes when you, depending on your background, sometimes when you start talking about fruit or sometimes when you talk about the differences in the soils, it makes some people uneasy. Uh, I think those people often are well-intentioned because it sounds a little bit to them like you're talking about a work-based salvation or that somehow we're earning our place in the new heavens and new earth. But the Bible doesn't talk the way that way. That's why the fruit is always, to me, an appropriate metaphor because the, the fruit is just evidence. The fruit isn't your ticket into heaven. The fruit isn't what qualifies you. What, what gets you into heaven, so to speak, is God's grace, right? It's God's grace through what Jesus Christ has done for sinners like you and me. But when you've been born again, there are evidences of that. Remember, J Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, you can't see the Spirit, but you can see what the Spirit does. And he compares it to the wind. Like we've all seen what the wind does outside this time of year. 
even though we've never actually seen wind per se itself. So it's his, the fruit of the Spirit, the, the evidences in our life, are ways of showing that we're born again, but they're not actually the basis by which we will enter Jesus' kingdom. Let me just read a little bit of this quote here from Turner, because I think he's trying to strike a balance between two wrong views of this parable. So Turner, in his commentary at the bottom of page 54, he says, There are those whose belief in eternal security leads them to conclude that any profession of receiving the gospel leads to eternal bliss in heaven. We may have heard people talk that way, right? Anybody that makes a profession, they're eternally secure, they for sure will be in heaven. But this will not do for Matthew, who teaches consistently that fruit is an indispensable test of genuine discipleship. On the other hand, so that's how these things usually work. There's a ditch on both sides of the road. You, you're trying to avoid one ditch, and so you swerve into the other ditch. So on the other hand, he says, there are degrees of fruit bearing, which should lead those who stress discipleship to avoid legalism and perfectionism. So remember, we are new people, but we aren't yet what we will be. We bear fruit, but we all bear that in different ways. So we have to be very careful of accusing another brother and sister of not being a brother or sister, right? That's what Turner is essentially saying. He says, one must not condemn as unbelievers would-be disciples who do not meet legalistic human standards. Mature discipleship does not happen overnight since godliness like fruit bearing requires a growing season before there can be a harvest. I like his his discussion there. I think it strikes a nice balance between two, two potential pitfalls that we could potentially steer into. So that's the parable of the soils. That's, that's the first one. And it, I think it does sent, it sets the agenda for all the rest of them. And I feel pretty confident saying that because it's the one that gets the emphasis again in the middle. It's the one that Jesus takes the time to give the private interpretation to for his disciples. So then let's look at those pairs, the parable of the weeds and the dragnet. I think they both make the same point. So point three there, at Jesus' coming, he will separate believers, or he says here the people of the kingdom or the sons of the kingdom, from unbelievers before establishing his kingdom. So earlier in Matthew's gospel, Back when we were in chapter 8, Jesus used that same expression, sons of the kingdom, and there he kind of uses it ironically for people who think they belong to the kingdom because of their ethnicity. And he says there's actually going to be those sons of the kingdom who get excluded while Gentiles get in. Here he's using it in a genuine sense. He's not talking about people who just think they're sons, but they really are sons in this age that we live in, they live mixed together like wheat and weeds. I always have a hard time saying that, wheat and weeds. I guess that's why we started saying tares, because tares and and, uh, wheat is a little easier to say, but the wheat and the weeds, or like the fish. I think the fish one is a little strange to us, because, you know, we're a little bit less discriminatory in what fish we eat, but a Jewish person, they would have cast their dragnet into the ocean and pulled up the fish and then they would have had to sort it. 
not all fish was allowed to be eaten by the law of Moses. For example, shellfish, even though we think of it as a delicacy, it would have automatically had to have been excluded. This same imagery is used in Habakkuk. Remember Habakkuk when he's, he's all in despair over the, the injustice in his country and God says, don't worry, I'm sending the Babylonians to, to bring judgment. And he says, whoa, God, don't do that because if the Babylonians come, they're just going to kill us all. They're going to be like a, a fisherman who just throws in his net and he hauls up everybody and he takes everybody. So there the idea is the Babylonians, when they judge, they won't be discriminatory, right? They'll just slaughter everybody. But Jesus is using that same picture, and he's saying, but when I judge, when I judge at the end of the age, I'll be a good judge, and I actually will separate people. I will be discriminating based on whether they've accepted me. Um, let's skip down then to, to verse, uh, or point five. So furthermore, I just wanted you to notice there in verse 7 that Jesus, he says he's the one who not only sows the seed. This is maybe a little detail that if we read quickly, we might miss. But remember back, there's the man in the story who's out there scattering the seed. In one sense, I think we identify ourselves with that person as we are sowing the gospel, as we're spreading the gospel. But ultimately, we're, we're Jesus' agents, Ultimately, we're doing his work when we preach the gospel. So he actually says he's the one that's sowing the seed. He's, he's doing it through us, but he is ultimately the one who's doing it. And then he says he's the one in verse, uh, uh, where does it say here? Verse 41, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. I just wanted you to notice what a great claim there Jesus is making about himself. He's putting himself on God's level, that he's the one who sows the gospel message, and he's the one who's going to send out the angels. This is another clear indication where he's, he's claiming the rights and power of God himself. All right, then the, the next little set here, we've got the, the mustard seed and the, and the yeast. I think together these make the point that those who follow Christ will start out quietly as a small group, but they will eventually grow into the large international constituency which will populate Jesus' kingdom. Large international constituency. thats I probably could have found an easier way to say that. I'm just saying <laughs> lots of Gentile people. Like I'm assuming most of us tonight, right? I'm assuming most of us tonight are Gentile people, and most of our brothers and sisters around the world tonight are Gentiles, right? And all over this globe, you know, they say there's billions of people who attend church regularly. We understand that not all of them are born again, but at least millions, I think that's safe to say, millions of fellow brothers and sisters around this world. And they all started out with one king and his 12 followers, really only 11 of them that are genuine. And then gradually they start gathering. You think about them on the day of Pentecost, you know, all huddled in that one little room together, scared. And from that one little motley band, if I can use that term, that one little small mustard seed, that one little piece of leaven, it's mushroomed and expanded into something great. And we haven't even seen its fullness yet. So remember my triangle about the kingdom? 
the piece of the kingdom program that's going on right now is the people, the community. That's why I named the class that way, the king and his new community. That's what's going on now. We have this group of people that's expanding, and it's expanding against all odds. It's expanding against persecution. It's expanding even though we're all different kind of people that wouldn't normally all get along with each other, but we have Christ in common, right? It's a supernatural thing that's happening. And I think that's what the mustard seed and the yeast both represent. And he really does emphasize, I think, the, the Gentileness of this because he has this little allusion there to Ezekiel 17:22. So this little reference to the, you know, the tree, the mustard seed grows into this, this big tree, which I've never tried to grow mustard plants, but I don't think they usually grow into trees that birds land on. Is that safe to say? Any gardeners here? They, I'm told that both the, the amount of bread that the woman produces and the tree are the type of thing that Jesus' original readers would have laughed at. They would have picked up on the fact that he's being um, extravagant in his descriptions of the growth. This isn't how things normally grow. But this tree grows so large that birds start landing and making their homes. That actually does come from several different Old Testament passages that talk about Jesus' future kingdom. It shows up in the book of Daniel, and it definitely shows up here in Ezekiel. It says, this is what the Lord says, I will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and I'll plant it. I will pluck a tender sprig from its topmost shoots, and I will plant it on a high, towering mountain. I will plant it on Israel's high mountain, so that it may bear branches, produce fruit, and become a majestic cedar. Birds of every kind will nest under it, taking shelter in the shade of its branches. Then all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. So the trees seem to represent kingdoms, right? So out of all of the forest of kingdoms, he's going to make one great tree that's greater than them all. And all the other trees will look and realize this is the best tree. And then it's also represented by birds who come and live in the tree. So you understand the symbolism there is talking about the greatness of Jesus' coming kingdom and how it will supplant all of the other kingdoms or governments that have ever been in this world. It says, Then all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the tall tree, and I make the low tree tall. I cause the green tree to wither, and make the withered tree thrive. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. So every time your, your election doesn't go the way you'd like it to, this is a good passage to go back and read, right? That all the trees of this world, the ones that look green, someday will wither. And the ones that look withered and small, God can make great again. And the one that we're looking forward to, the one that we're already citizens, that we belong to, hasn't come yet, right? And once it comes, it will last forever. Of uh, The increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. All right, one last little set here. Let's go back to our sets. Let's talk a little bit about the hidden treasure and the pearl. So I think here he's specifically talking about the, uh, the response to the gospel. So again, my triangle, I think the big emphasis here is on the people. How would people rightly respond to the gospel? What would it look like if someone really did get the gospel, if they really did embrace it because they were born again? I think it's represented by the reactions of these people in the parable. So the parable of the soil sets the stage for the entire discourse. 
by making clear that the same gospel message will meet with both a negative and positive response. The parables of the weeds and its companion, the parable of the dragnet, focus on the negative responses, which will lead to judgment at the end of the age. The central four parables focus on the positive response of those who will one day enter the kingdom. The first two in this category, the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast, they focus on growth in a spectacular final state after a very small beginning. This is an exterior view of the growing constituency of the kingdom. So if you back up and you look at all of us as a people and how we're growing around the world, we're represented by the mustard seed and the leaven. But what if you stepped in close and you actually looked internally at our heart? What would that be represented like? And I think that's where Jesus brings in the parables of the treasure and the pearl. They focus on the change within those who enter the kingdom. The change that causes them to see the kingdom as something of supreme value. These sons of the kingdom will, upon meeting Jesus, value him above everything. And like Simon, Andrew, James, and John, Matthew himself, and eventually two blind men in Jericho, will be willing to abandon all to follow him. So do you remember the stories? So the one story is about a man who, he's in the business of gathering pearls. He's seen lots of pearls, right? I, I know nothing about pearls. Not exactly sure if I've ever up close examined a real pearl. But the man in the story has seen lots of pearls. And one day he finds one pearl that's so much better than all the other pearls that he's ever seen that he has to have it. He's willing to give up. The story says he sells everything he owns so that he can buy that one pearl. And then the other story is just a man, he happens to be out one day and he finds a treasure. And this treasure is so great, it's so valuable, that he never wants to lose it. Well, they don't have very good banking systems back then. And wars come and go. So if you wanted to keep something very safe, you buried it. You buried it, and then whatever happened, you could always come back and find it. But that's not good enough for this treasure, because this treasure is so valuable that he's afraid someone might happen it. So I'm going to protect it. It says he, buy, he sells everything he owns. He sells everything he owns, the same language as the pearl merchant, so that he can buy that piece of land, so that no one will ever accidentally find his treasure. Both parables are making the same point that we in this life come across something that's more valuable to us than anything that we've ever seen before. And for it, or I think at this point I could say for him, for the king, we would give up, if asked, everything in order to have him because we find him to be so valuable. That's what regeneration actually looks like. Jesus doesn't actually ask all of us to give up everything. Some of us get to keep our resources so that we can use them to accomplish his mission. But if he asked us to, I hope we all would. And I think if we're born again, we would. Later on in the story, when we get to the next semester, there's going to be a man who's standing face to face with Jesus and says, what can I do to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, if you sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me, you'll have riches in heaven. You talk about assurance of salvation, right? He's got Jesus face-to-face -face saying, if you do X, I guarantee you will be in the kingdom of heaven and have great riches. And what does that man do? 
He walks away because he loves his wealth. I hope we wouldn't do that, right? I hope if we were face-to-face with our Lord, and he says, I want you to do this, and if you do this, I guarantee that you'll be with me someday in my kingdom, and I will reward you richly. Our hearts, if they're born again, would say, yes, I will do that. That's what these parables are teaching, that genuine, changed hearts will value the king. I think that's, so if we think about our triangle, I think we're focused on the top now, the king, and we will value him above all else. And then there's been lots of examples of people in Matthew's story who have done that. We have Simon, Andrew, James, and John, Matthew, and then eventually two blind men. So Morris, in his commentary, he states the point well. There can be a treasure such that it is worth selling everything in order to possess it. So with membership in the kingdom. But then what about this very last little parable? So this one, I think, actually concludes the section. If you look at verse 53, you've got our familiar phrase, when Jesus had finished. You see that? When Jesus had finished. That's the same little phrase that ends all five discourses. So when we come back in January, that'll be where we pick up. But look at what Jesus says right before then. So he's talking to the disciples, and he says, have you, understand, have you understood all these things? Jesus asked, and they said yes. Which I think means that they were clear, right? So I think anytime someone tries to interpret the parables for you, and they come up with something very extravagant that doesn't seem to be clearly said in the passage, I think they must be mistaken, because the disciples who first heard these, they seem to have thought they were fairly easy to understand. Once they got this key, the middle, once the middle was interpreted for them, the the parable of the soils, they understood what Jesus was saying in all the other ones. And so then Jesus says to them in verse 52, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So another word for teacher of the law would be scribes. Remember the scribes had been Jesus' enemies already in the gospel. So a scribe originally was a person who was paid to copy the law by hand. But then over time, the word kind of evolved to mean a person who was an expert in the law. Because, you know, If you'd been a regular copyist, you would have become very familiar with it. Later, probably the people called scribes, you know, they might have gotten so high that they actually didn't do the writing themselves, but they were experts in the law. So here Jesus is saying that if you, every expert of the law, who has been uh, become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven, or I think that would probably be better translated a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. So you go to Matthew uh, chapter 27, the same phrase is used of being a disciple of Jesus when it talks about Joseph taking him off the cross. So I would translate it a disciple of the kingdom. So if you're a scribe or a, ma- a teacher of the law who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, you're like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So I think he's talking about us. I think anybody who's a disciple of Jesus has now become a scribe or an expert in the kingdom of heaven. We're like, well, that's a bold thing for Jesus to say. I don't know if we always feel like 
experts in the kingdom of heaven. But he, then he, he expands the metaphor. He says, you're like a person who has a big house with lots of resources. And when you're going to do something, he doesn't really say what it is, but you know, a big party, a big project, you have stuff in your house that you can draw from. And he says, you now have stuff that's old and you have stuff that's new. And together, those become great resources for you. And it's the fact that you have both that make you the expert. I think, even though it's not clearly said, I think old and new in the context of Matthew and in the context of the whole chapter that's been dealing with revelation that's given to us, I think he's talking about old revelation and new revelation. So I've tried really hard in this class to show you lots of slides of the Old Testament, right? Lots of places where just sometimes little fragments are just quoted real quickly by Matthew because Matthew is an expert in the kingdom of heaven. He realized after hearing Jesus teach that what Jesus was saying wasn't completely new. Jesus was just the new and best chapter of a story that's been going on for a long, long time. So he, like many of his Jewish countrymen, they knew lots of Old Testament. So they had old stuff that they could draw out from their storehouse, but now Jesus is giving them new revelation. And when we put the old and the new together, they don't compete with each other, they don't contradict each other, they complement each other. And when we put them all together to form a message about Jesus, you and I can be experts, trained as disciples for the kingdom of heaven. That's, the, I think, a good place to end. we got time, though. Any, any questions that we can talk about? Yep. I see it as one kingdom in two phases. Because the judgment doesn't come until after thousands of years. So, so if God had wanted to, uh, Jesus could return, and then the final judgment could take place, and we could immediately go into the, the final state. And that's what our amillennial brothers believe and sisters. But I think specifically based on the end of Revelation, chapter 20, I think that it has a first phase so that Jesus comes, he establishes a kingdom, he rolls back the curse, but in his mercy he uh, delays the final judgment and allows one more 1,000 year period for people to live here on the earth and make a decision about him. But John sees in his prophecy that at the end of that time, that people again, because they have unregenerate hearts, when given the option of following Satan and following uh, Jesus, that many of them, he says they're like the sand of the seashore, rise up in rebellion against their good king. And then the judgment comes and then the final state. So I don't, I don't separate them into like two kingdoms. I think it's better to think of one kingdom, but with a thousand-year phase to start it. Yeah. So the, the amillennialists, uh, usually when they're in Matthew 13, they would look at that passage uh, where it talks about removing people from the kingdom. Uh, so that's in, um, trying to remember, lost my spot here. Uh, verse 30, 37. 
So he says, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. Uh, the weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. And the harvester is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. And then verse 41, the son of man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They tend to really focus on verse 41, and they would say we're currently in the kingdom, so all of us, unsaved and saved, but that someday the unsaved will be weeded out of the kingdom. But I think what they miss there is the fact that Jesus in verse 38 said the field doesn't represent the kingdom. The field represents the world. So the thing about the kingdom that's here right now, I think, is the people. But the unbelieving people are separate from that. They're a, they're a different category, a different family. And it, but what draws us all together is that we're in the same field, which is the world. But the millennial kingdom gives us the place. Yeah. 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 So what we're waiting for is what Jesus taught us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer, His model prayer. He said we're supposed to pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what we're waiting for is Daniel's prophecy to come true. A kingdom that comes from heaven to earth, takes the place of all the governments of this world, knocks them down, establishes itself, and then it lasts forever. But when I say it lasts forever, that doesn't exclude the fact that it has a, a little a thousand year period to start with where things will be slightly different. But what is a thousand years when it lasts forever, right? That will be a drop. Yes? Uh, but there will be some people that will be saved during the kingdom. Yeah. yeah, that's what it seems like. You know, it's not re there's not real clear verses that talk about that, but you would assume that's true. So all of us that enter are born again because Jesus told Nicodemus you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. So then the question is, well, where do these other people come from? And I think the best explanation is that some people enter in with their mortal bodies. Uh, they haven't been glorified yet because they were still alive when Jesus returned. And so they start procreating, there's children, and then those children have to make their own decisions. Um, yeah. Yeah, we're getting we're getting into uh, inferences. You know, I can't point to clear passages that say that, but we do have to do that. Sometimes in theology we make inferences, just like the doctrine of the Trinity. There's no one passage that says the Trinity is a thing, but it's inferences from lots of passages. So that's that'd be my best inference. Yeah. Yeah, so you and I, I would I would think we've we've been translated, we've been at the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15 says we'll be changed in the twinkling of eye. So we'll go in in immortal bodies that won't perish, but there'll be other people I think who were saved during that tribulation period who then enter with mortal bodies. Um I think if I had somebody that disagreed with me right now, they'd be like, "Oh, that's, you know, that's hokey. Where are you where are you getting that from?" But I can't think of any other way for there to be this large group of people at the end that rebels against Jesus. I can't think of any other explanation for where they came from other than that they were born during that period. And if they were born during that period, then that means there has to be people who are, who are still mortal. 
in their in their normal bodies like we have today. Does that does that make sense? Yeah. Any other questions? Yep. Yeah, that's a tough question. I think we're out of time now. No. <laughs> uh, so the short, the short answer, the short answer is I think they'll have the same purpose they had in the Old Testament. I think it's a mistake some people make in their thinking that they used to take away their sins ultimately. So Hebrews doesn't say the blood of bulls and goats used to take away sin. Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. It never does. So what was happening underneath the law of Moses wasn't a final removal of sin. It was a very horizontal civic forgiveness. It was a way for people living under a theocracy to be right with the state. So there's no speeding tickets in the law of Moses. There's no jail. There's no fines. And when Jesus is ruling here on earth, I don't think there's going to be chain gangs. There's not going to be jails. What's he going to do with people? What will he do with people who rebel against him? How will they make themselves right with the king if they sin? And I think the way they'll do that is with the sacrificial system. Um, so the Bible teacher John Whitcomb, years ago, he wrote a journal article. I think it's still the best on that topic. But it's a, it's a, it's a difficult topic. I admit it. It's a, it's a hard one to think about. All right. Well, Lord willing, I'll see uh, many or all of you back in January. I'm looking forward to being here. Till then, I hope you enjoy your, your Christmas season. And uh, we've, we've had the privilege of thinking deeply about the gospel. So I hope that we all have opportunities to talk about the gospel with uh, unsaved family and friends. And Lord willing, I'll see you in January. You too. You too.